Welcome back to another Dogwood webinar. I'm Kai Nagata. I'm here in the Victoria office uh, at Dogwood, uh, here on the territory of the Lekwungen peoples, the Songhees and Esquimalt, uh, shared with the Wasanich people. And I'm here with uh, Adam Olson. Uh, do you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, it's Kwechol, Hale at CM. Which is that way. With lungs, I'm Sahanup, uh, is my uh, Coast Salish name, Adam Olson, uh, from the Kusaitanish territory, just a little bit north from here, and uh, grew up in Chotlip. I'm the member of the Legislative Assembly for Saanich North and the Islands, and um, part of the Green Caucus, BC Green Caucus. Well, thank you very much for making time uh, to join us. We've got a lot of volunteers and uh, supporters on the line cool. who are. Curious about um, the passage of the BC Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. Congratulations. Yeah. It uh, became law today. So were you at the ceremony um, for the royal assent? I, I was, yeah. The, uh, the royal nod looks something like this. <laughs> and that's how uh, all laws go from becoming, you know, it's an act when the, when the Speaker of the House says it is an act. That's mm. when it's enacted. Uh, but when you, when the uh, lieutenant governor comes in is when it receives royal assent, and she basically nods on behalf of the crown that uh, all the laws that we've uh, worked so hard to get through to that point are good laws. Hmm. So it's a interesting process. It was it was actually particularly interesting for this one, considering uh, kind of the 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 depth and the breadth of the law that we were. Uh, or the the changes that uh, we've been making in uh, that sorry that are made with this law, and then to have the crown come in and and have to give it royal assent, yeah, uh, really speaks to what it is that actually we're doing. What what went through your head when uh, when you saw that royal nod? Um, well, I you know her honor Janet Austin is um, a, a very interesting uh, person. She has made it. Uh, a goal of hers to speak Senchothan and to learn Senchothan. And every time she's come in, she has actually, her knowledge and her understanding of Senchothan uh, has grown. Hmm. And um, today, actually, she stopped, if you were watching the video of it, she stopped by and asked me, well, what do you think about my pronunciation? And I say, well, it's, it's brilliant that, you know, the representative of the crown has taken, has taken uh, it upon herself to, learn the indigenous language of the area, to use it uh, in, her, in her official capacity how she, as she introduces herself, uh, talking about her, her good feelings, mm -hmm. uh, which is what she was talking about today, and the people, and acknowledging the territory. It's, it's, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a remarkable change uh, in, in the representative of the Crown to be doing that. And right from the very first moment, she let me know that it was going to be a priority of hers, and she has has followed through on that. So, um, you know, there's lots of change going on. I figure she probably has a lot of spare time. I mean, <laughs> Lieutenant Governor, there's long gaps between bills. I mean, you'd have time for pottery or language <laughs> lessons, right? Well, Senchothan is not a simple language. And, and in fact, you know, part of the reason why I use Senchothan so regularly in the legislature is because in indigenous language is just in general, but but the, as I'm starting to learn different words and, and different phrases and uh, contexts, it actually is a completely different worldview. Mm. And part of what I appreciate so much of, uh, of the language, and, and as I'm beginning to learn, and I still am just way, way, uh, way, a long way to go, 
but is that it unlocks a different perspective and it unlocks a different relationship that uh, that humans have with the world around them, with nature, with us, uh, that, that we have with nature. And so uh, very the Cheltz, who's the creator, the transformer in the in the Hussein uh, territory, um, was came around the territory and was transforming humans into all of the other living things around. And so the relationship is really one of of family, hmm. and it 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 has a way of regulating a relationship if what you're doing is looking at that cedar tree, that chape, as your relative, hmm. as hmm. the kind people. That's, That's that is the relationship that the Chusaitnich have with the cedar tree is that they are the kind people. They're the people that give of themselves, uh, even to their own detriment. They'll give the, the skin off of their backs. They'll give planks off of their side and continue to persist and continue to live for hundreds of years afterwards. They're the kind people. They're the most giving people. And so yeah, part of the reason why I talk about Shetnuch and Chapeh and the salmon mm-hmm. and, the, and the cedar trees and and um, and the Kaltholomachin, the orca whale, is because our relationship is one of family. We fished alongside one another, uh, the the whale and the the orca and the and the First Nations fished alongside each other mm-hmm. for hundreds of years, helping each other out. Those are our relatives of the deep, and uh, the Shetnuch are the hardest working people. The so these are all stories that really help in redefining how we relate to the world around us. Saying the kind people is a little bit different from timber supply area or allowable cut. That's right. Uh, or, or fiber. Yeah. You know, what is the value of fiber right now? Well, the value of fiber right now is, you know, the, the, the value of a tree is when it's laying down. Yeah. And um, the, the Hussainich people saw the value of the tree while it was still standing. In fact, most of the trees that we harvested from stayed standing. Mm-hmm. Um, and any trees that we needed for for building and for, for canoes or for whatever were trees that were windfall, hmm. right? So um, you go and you you harvest what's laying on the ground. Very few trees were actually taken down. Um, very difficult to take one of those big trees down. Sure. So yeah, it, it, it is a completely different relationship. I actually wanted to, I was curious, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your uh, Hussainich identity. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I'm used to seeing you in a, a suit and tie or a, a button down. Um, and uh, I remember when you were sworn in, yeah. you wore this very striking uh, regalia into the legislature. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, when this bill was introduced, and I was wondering, uh, since we have the ability to, to show some pictures, do, do you mind describing what you're wearing and uh, just explaining the significance of that regalia? I'll bring these up. Let me just have a... Yeah, so I invited... Uh, excuse me. <coughs> I invited my uh, chief, uh, Don Tom, who you see on the, on the right side... Uh, there with the uh, with the the um, headband on, and then uh, uh, that's uh, Simon Smith uh, right over my left shoulder there, Simon Smith Senior, and Fraser Smith, the two elders from Chotlip, uh, the Sartlip community, um, and uh, also had my cousin Gord Elliott Senior uh, there as well. My dad was there. And um, so we invited them, and, and I just wanted them to witness it. This is the first time that our territory, Hussainich, has been represented by somebody with uh, Hussainich heritage. And, um, and in fact, if you take a look at the, the geographic uh, boundaries of my riding, they are basically the northern half of the Hussainich territory in the Canadian side of the border. 
And so I represent basically, for the most part, the territory. In fact, Elizabeth May, who's the MP for Saanich Gulf Islands, her riding boundary is more of a, because it's larger, Mm -hmm. the federal boundaries are larger. It is almost a direct reflection of the territory, aside from a little bit further east. Hmm. Anyway, when I uh, when I showed up there, I had my my suit and tie on, mm-hmm. and they put this on me. And this is a blanket um, that, as and you can see, Fraser's also wearing a blanket. And then um, this headdress is is uh, much more involved and uh, than the, the than the headbands that they're wearing. And it's a real honor to be able to to wear this headdress. It allows me to. Um, to take a, a role in the leadership of our communities. And this blanket is a way for us to, uh, for our people, we, we put blankets on people to protect them. And th- that's what they did. They put the tamath, the, the paint on my face. And uh, this is our connection to the earth. Now, interestingly enough, I just started to learn a little bit about the, the tamath, the paint. And um, the teachings are that anybody can wear that paint. It's our connection to the earth. And my name, Adam, uh, is a bl- biblical name, but it mm. also means man of red earth as mm. well. So there's some, there's some uh, pretty cool ties there. But this is um, this was a real honor, and in fact, I was given this. So I have I I have a, a, a luggage bag that this goes in, and and uh, I never wore that again until the bill uh, was brought into the house, and I and I was I had the opportunity to speak on behalf of there you go. I had the big opportunity to speak on behalf of the uh, BC Green Caucus when there was a ministerial statement um, to the bill, and uh, I, I I decided not to wear the blanket, but this is a paddle jacket. This is also a Coast Salish, uh, or paddle vest, I guess. Uh, this is also a Coast Salish um, um, regalia, and those are cedar paddles on them, and... Uh, Hmm. And it's a, it's a, it, you see those around. Um, basically, they wear them for, uh, in performances and in official events like this. But I put the the headdress back on for this. And it was quite an honor to be able to be there and and be a part of that and to speak on behalf of the third party. It's history making. It is much like the lieutenant governor speaking in the the language right. of the land. There's history something happening. There is, yeah. So uh, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, it was adopted in 2007, not yeah. by Canada. It took another almost 20 years for Canada to drop its objection. Um, and it's taken us this long to have the declaration affirmed in legislation from a Canadian province. Correct. I'm curious um, where you see your work uh, beginning in that project. When, hmm. when did you become involved in the project of bringing the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People into force in BC. Yeah, so just a, I'll just add a little bit more history to that, and that was that Canada was actually one of four countries in the, on the planet in the globe to actually speak out against it. Canada, United States, Australia, New Zealand actually said no that they they were the only ones that didn't adopt it at the time. And uh, when Trudeau got elected in 2015, I think it took him a year, but by 2016. Um, Canada had embraced, and I think Harper embraced parts of it. I think the BC Liberal government embraced, you know, picked and choose the parts that they that they were comfortable with, mm. the parts that caused them some discomfort. They decided to leave out. And I think one of the things that people have have said is that it, 
it's a complete document. Yeah. You, you don't you don't go in and say, well, you have, and we're going to affirm your human rights on this, but we're not over here because this is a little bit difficult for us to kind of wrap our heads around yeah. fully giving up, uh, you know, any kind of giving any ground on on certain areas, right? Um, so I, I guess uh, to the question, I started to work on this when the um, well, I did a little bit of community work on this, but really from a from a political perspective, it was when the BC Green Party was drafting its its uh, its campaign platform for 2017. So at some point in in 2016, mm. the party came to me and said, we've got to draft a, a comprehensive Indigenous a platform for Indigenous rights, Indigenous people. What is your recommendation on it? And um, I, I think they went out a, a little bit more broadly than that, but I was certainly, I think, was very strong on the fact that the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People had to be the central component of our, of our platform and the second piece to that actually is I was really quite vocal about the fact that the Indigenous platform couldn't be the last thing that we say. It couldn't be the third last thing that we say. It couldn't be the fifth last thing that we say. It had to be the first component of our platform. Mm -hmm. So what needs to happen is if we actually believe in this, mm -hmm. then we will establish our platform in the context of the fact that we believe that the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of and and I and it's been a while since I got into it, but I think that that's what happened. And and um, that's a big. Shift. I'm sure someone's gonna someone's gonna go. No, no, no. It was the sixth last thing that you said. But anyway, I think I think we we grounded our platform in it, and so that was where it really started. Yeah. And then uh, we went through the election, and 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 certainly I think there's a growing movement uh, around it. And um, then when we had a minority government result happen. And the BC Greens were in conversation with both the BC NDP and the BC Liberals. This was a a piece of that negotiation, hmm. and uh, you know we were kind of lining up. Okay, we line up our values, right? We have a conversation with both parties. There are certain things that are really important. Of course, climate change is one. Uh, indigenous relations uh, were another one, and. Um, and then it, it has been a part of the confidence and supply agreement that we ended yes. up signing with the BCNDP. And, uh, and I think it was at that point that my work on this really, really started to happen. I became the critic for Indigenous Relations and Reconciliation. I immediately went to work to continue to build on a relationship that was previously existing with Minister Scott Fraser. I've met with him, I think, every month since uh, the beginning. Um, maybe save for a couple of months at the beginning, but for the most part, we've met and he's given time for me and, and, and sought advice and asked questions. And, and I've often said the relationship that I have with Minister Fraser is the way that government should work. It's the way that a critic and a minister should work together to try to better policy. And he's always been open to that. And I, hmm. I have to raise my hands to him. He's, he's a fine man and, and, uh, did some really good work in the face of a lot of uh, uh, opposition uh, to this, uh, to this at the beginning, and I think he stuck through it. Um, but for me, I, I think it's been a it's been a mixture of both uh, soft and hard diplomacy, really. Mm -hmm. And that was continuing to create a situation in which uh, we can have the debate and have the conversation on one hand, and on the other hand, 
trying and, and attempting to create almost an impossible situation that we can't back out yeah. of the movement forward. And so I've been trying uh, to do both and, and working on a, a variety of aspects. I've been writing about this, you know, before every session saying this is the session. And I, I kind of joked, I said, you know, even, even the minister was, you know, even the minister, I don't think he was ever frustrated with me, but I'd go in before every session. I say, is this the session? No, we still got some work to do. And I, oh, okay. You know, I'm going to come back. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep talking about this. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's about a, a mix of being, of, of finding a way to, to have a, a balanced approach to something, respecting the minister for the work that has to be done. It's not easy work doing this. So rather than getting angry or, or getting kind of venomous around it, just applying the pressure and saying, we're still here. This is still part of our agreement. This is still part of your mandate. This is still part of the mandate of every member of cabinet. It's important that we get this work done. Mm-hmm. And here we are standing at the end of 2019, just before we, uh, I, you know, just before we turn to 2020, mm-hmm. we can start a fresh decade on the work that we have ahead. I, this is a lot of me talking, but I, I, I do want to, to say something just about the broader context of this, mm-hmm. because I got elected for the first time in 2008 at a local government table, and there was no conversation about Indigenous rights. In fact, the, the situation that I inherited was a very poor relationship. Well, it was a, it was a, it was kind of a non-existent relationship between the First Nations and the in the municipality that I was elected to. And I really think that the conversation changed fundamentally during I don't know more back in in the winter of 2012, 2013. Yeah. And I really think that that set us on a completely different course uh, in this country. And and I've often talked about how there was an evolution where Indigenous leaders meeting in public places and singing their songs and celebrating their culture for the first time, I think, that I am cognizant of, there was an invitation in. Mm. Join us. Mm -hmm. Sing with us. Learn about Indigenous cultures. And to be honest with you, it was part of the first time that I started to learn in any detail my culture. It was like an invitation for me to come in as well. And so I just want to tip my hat to that because when you say, when did I start the work? I would say that the work started from a cultural perspective in Canada when there was this invitation to join in with the songs and with the drumming in public places. And it was a bitterly cold winter. Yeah. With, you know, like it was, it was raining sleet and snow and it was cold and people went out anyways and they did it and uh, we got the, the 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 regular you know dumping on social media and on and on um at the at the bottom of news stories just just vile grotesque comments about indigenous people that you know that you know my dad has been hearing this about him for his entire life and now it's being it's showing up and then something out of that really beautiful happened that that I witnessed and that was some of those people that were starting to learn the culture that were invited to sing started to respond hmm. and then that's when and it wasn't until we started to see non-indigenous people respond to say this is awful you need to stop saying this that it was it wasn't the indigenous people that were saying please stop this that stopped the media from doing it it was the allies that were coming out and saying this we're not putting up with any of this we need to stop and then all of a sudden, the comment sections were closed and it was shut down. Yeah. And a lot's changed since then. That's a really brief history. Yeah. Sorry. Um, 
So when it landed, I mean, there were there were months and months of uh, consultation and joint drafting with yeah. the uh, with the First Nations Leadership Council. When it landed, it kind of felt like this whirlwind. Like it it went through first reading, it went through second reading, and then there was this uh, gap. There was a break of a yeah. couple of weeks, and I I got worried in the last week because mm-hmm. we're coming up to the end of the session, and uh, you know, a couple of days ago, I see a release from the um, Union of BC Indian Chiefs saying. You've got to get this thing through before the end of the session. Don't let this die on the order paper. It looked like it almost uh, went off the rails. Can you give us a little bit of an inside track on what what happened in the last couple of weeks? Like, what was going on? Yeah, so while that drafting was happening, um, there wasn't a lot that I could be briefed on because you can't see the legislation, Mm -hmm. like the actual document, um, until until it's there. And so... All along, the minister, you know, was providing me a verbal update on on where things were at. And my advice was, we need to make sure that if we're going to manage one piece of legislation well through the House, that this is the one. Mm -hmm. That the experience of Indigenous people, the experience that my my dad and and my uncles and aunts have shared with me, is that, you know, if, if there is something that's good, it usually goes bad. And that's been the experience. And so I was relaying that repeatedly for a couple of a few months four or five months saying our experience is when we talk about something good it usually turns bad it usually goes rotten something breaks like everything usually ends up going the other way and so actually you know i i would i'm I'm, i guess i'm being a little bit hyperbolic when i say this but i'm gonna say it because i think that that there's a bunch of people out there that are going to agree with this and that is that this is the first time where something that has been promised that is big, that has big changes, that has big implications, has actually gone from being an idea to now being law. And if you think about it, Romeo Saganash's bill federally was a big idea, lots of agreement, lots of, hey, we're going to get this done. And then what happened? It just, just the died. Senate. The Senate that's killed right. it. That's right. So that was the worry yeah. in British Columbia. I think that's what you're talking about. That was the worry that you had. And I think that that was part of the reason why we needed to continue to apply pressure to it to say, manage the house, get this through, don't mess around, don't let it languish, but keep it moving. And I, the UBCIC had a similar perspective on that, and we just kept we just kept the pressure on. And you know, the the members of the official opposition, the, uh, Mike DeYoung and and crew, I spent 25 hours in committee mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks. Um, uh, but eventually they voted uh, stood down and then yeah. voted unanimously for it. Were you surprised to see the, the BC Liberals come on board at all three stages? Um, no. No, I, I wasn't. I think, I think that uh, enough work had been done. Hmm. I think enough work has been done. And I, and I actually think that, that the people that were hanging on were hanging on uh, for the status quo, but the reality was was that Anybody who's been around this file knows that the courts have been saying, get your act together, fix mm-hmm. it on the ground, fix it in legislation. Don't fix this in court. It's the wrong place to do this. Mm-hmm. Do this in a, in a relationship. Do this. And, and the only way to, to actually do the relationship was to fundamentally change the posture of government. Yeah. Because what happened, what, what, what was happening before, and I think it's important that people know this, is what was happening before was... Um, it would go so, these initiatives would move so far and then they'd say, well, we can't, there's no application for this in law. There's no way for us to actually do this, right? And so when, 
when, uh, um, like, like for example, now uh, the indigenous people can define themselves. They have the yeah. right to self determination, right? Before the only way that you could that a provincial government would cre- could create an agreement, a legal agreement, would be with an, an Indian Act reserve, an Indian Act band, yeah. uh, or a nonprofit society, or a corporation. Mm-hmm. So what you have is you have Indian Act bands that are not reflective of Indian Indian Act, or they're, they're reflective of, of the Indian Act, the colonial definition of a community or of a, of a group of indigenous people. Um, they're not reflective of the reality, right, of the territory. It's a postage stamp. It's an, an elected council. You know, it it's only exists in the, in the colonial framework of the Indian Act. And, um, or a nonprofit society. So if you take a look at some of the hereditary chief groups, they've, they've you know, the hereditary chiefs exist because they've created a, a society, a charity, mm-hmm. or a charitable organization, or a nonprofit. Uh, and so, so that's how they've constituted themselves, uh, or an economic development corporation. So, you know, you'll see, uh, first nations have their economic development corporation that does their work, you know, whatever the work is. Uh, and so the government could relate to those, only those organizations. Now there's truly a way for government to relate to an indigenous group that has defined itself said, this is our group. This is how we're going to be governed. Right. This is how we want to interact with you. And the provincial government can now say, oh, great. Okay, that's good. You guys have got it sorted out. Yeah, we respect that. And off you go. And, and before, it, frustrating for indigenous uh, leaders, the province would be like, oh, sorry, we can't talk to you. We don't know yeah. who you are, what you are. Yeah. So. Well, I had, a, I had a conversation with a former BC premier during the Wet'suwet'en standoff with the RCMP who was frustrated because he said, well, who are we supposed to negotiate with? We talked to the band. Like, we got permission to build this yeah. pipeline from the band counselors. So who are we supposed to negotiate with? Yeah. And I thought, wow, like that's um, a lot of learning that has to take place now within government. Now that they've written that down and unanimously adopted that, that, that is going to hit the ground in really interesting ways around the province. Yeah, and, and I think that part of the, you know, I, I think that on one hand, we've got more certainty today than we had in the yesterday mm-hmm. or a couple days ago uh and on the other hand there's some there's some things that are less certain and that is exactly how are indigenous communities and indigenous people going to organize themselves right right and and that is part of uh that that's not the uncertainty that the people who were the naysayers to this bill were talking about right. by the way let's be clear about that what they were talking about was the the right of a corporation to harvest as much as they want yeah. And ship as much of the profits. Maybe we should offshore. use a different word. Can we use the word like possibility, or uh, is there a? Well, well, I, I mean, I think I think that it's it's as long as the distinction there. Sure, we, we we can we can play around with language, but I I think that what's important to to point out is that now an indigenous now an indigenous community is empowered to go and organize it, itself around its own set of governance, and I'll give an example. Because up until uh, October, I have been saying the two biggest ways that the provincial government can demonstrate reconciliation, like the actions of reconciliation, is through investments in, in language revitalization, um, in, in, in teaching people like my kids and me, Sinchothan, 
mm-hmm. so that we've got that different worldview. That's a phenomenal way uh, because one of the things that they did with the residential schools was strip language uh, and break that cycle uh, that cycle of learning. Yeah. The second one is get our get our um, ancestors out of museums and let's do a, a wholesale repatriation. So those are the two areas. Then I went to the Heitsu territory and I went to the opening of their longhouse and I sat there for an entire week in uh, Weglisla in Bella Bella mm-hmm. and I witnessed the the politics and governance of the Central Coast in full on full display. And I thought, okay, the third thing that needs to be done is we need to build, we need to invest in building houses of governance mm. because there's this, there's this feeling as, oh, those indigenous people, they're not going to be able to organize, the, figure out their own governance structures or, you know, there's this, there's, there's always been this criticism that they can't do it. We, we, the culture in Canada will do it for them and it'll be fine. What I witnessed was, was beautiful. It was brilliant. It was unbelievable. The potlatch culture uh, it's slightly different up there than down here, but it was very well organized uh, in terms of who is what and where and why and how and 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 these you know for a lot of communities don't have longhouses in them anymore, but that those are the houses of governance and and that's where the that's where the laws are made and that's where the laws are kept, and it was very 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 structured and a very important. Um, piece of reconciliation so i think now we've got this uh we've got the bureaucracy empowered to create relationships and build relationships with um, with a more diverse group Mm -hmm. it's up to the first nations across the province to start to do that work that work of rebuilding nationhood and governance that's a that's a huge piece of it there's also other other pieces that the province is responsible for so could we talk about what those next steps are because they've they've committed now to creating an action plan reporting out on it but there's a whole bunch of work that happens now that's supposed to happen in partnership and in consultation so yeah. what, what would you highlight for folks who are wondering what's next well i've got this handy dandy little cheat mm-hmm. sheet here i mean I, it's it's not uh it's not simple by any means and in fact one of the things that i uh, felt bad for the minister because we went from me advocating very strongly that we get this bill passed to um looking at the December meeting and saying, okay, now we need to talk about the action plan. But there's, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a bunch of pieces to this. Some of it's uh, been done before. Some of it hasn't been done um, at all. Uh, there's been, um, I think, I think there's been, th- this document that I have for me in front of me is starting to lay out. And I don't think actually the government has done too much thinking in terms of what an action plan looks like. Mm. Because I think, frankly, the work to get this bill together and get it there. Um, you know, perhaps there could have been an argument had the resources been there to have a parallel system that says, okay, you get the bill. Then you also have some, a, a team working on what the action plan looks like. Um, that could be argued as well that, that you can't, if, if what you're doing is saying that you're going to be coming to the table as equal partners and having a discussion, developing an action plan for then the government to roll out for first nations leaders to say, here it is. Now you've got now now you've got the the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. By the way, here's our action plan. I think that part of what needs to be done is is uh, Indigenous leaders in the provincial government need to get together mm-hmm. and they need to develop that. They need to co-develop that mm-hmm. plan. And there's there's specific aspects of it that uh, that need to be looked at. Um, they need to clearly identify what the steps are going to be. They need to clearly identify what the First Nations role is. They need to clearly identify what the stakeholder and public involvement is 
there's some there's some clear things that need to be sorted out, but um, I don't think that you can do it, uh, that the provincial government can do it alone. It needs to be done. This needs to start at the start, yeah. right? At the very beginning, it needs to be done well. And so. I mean, fundamentally, what we're, what we're talking about is reconciling a, a legal system with underlying legal systems. Like what the government has committed to doing is to bring BC laws and regulations into line with the articles of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. There's 46 articles. There's a thousand bills on the books, a thousand laws on the books in BC. And so that is a multi-year, multi-decade process. Yeah, and they were all all those laws were made after the Royal Proclamation, which basically was if you're going to settle these lands, you need to make agreements. Mm-hmm. So what the fascinating piece about the, the, the narrative against the UNDRIP is that, well, it's free prior and informed consent. This is really scary language to us. It's, I don't know that we can agree to that because that means consent. That's got to mean a veto. And then they, and then, you know, they kind of made it muddy and muddied it and further muddied it. The reality is, is that if you go all the way back to that first proclamation and said, look, there's, there has to be consent mm-hmm. that you have to gain the consent of the indigenous people, the, Terra Nullius and the, and the Doctrine of Discovery were, were not things, right? Like, they didn't exist. There was agreement that Indigenous people were here, that these were not empty lands. And so you have to, you have to make treaty. You have to get consent from the people that you're going to settle the lands. Well, especially in British Columbia, we just said, ah, forget about that. It's way too much work. And, and you know, I think that there's some, le- there's some information that we get from James Douglas, who's, who's asking for more money to be able to do it. And the Crown basically said, no, there's, there's no more. You don't, we don't have any more money for you to be signing these agreements. And then, you know, so he stopped. And then the people directly after him really stopped. And, and then, uh, and, and now we are in the situation that we're in. So I think, um, I think that we have, yes, a multi, a multi-year, multi-decade process that uh, that is going to require a, f- a framework to work through, mm-hmm. and it's going to require indigenous people, indigenous leaders, to identify which laws, you know, where we're going to start, yeah, or w- where we start together in yeah. de- in defining those things. And um, you know, I imagine it probably starts with a land and works its way from there. So, do you have do you have a sense of some of those priorities? We're going to get into questions from uh, from listeners in a minute who have some very specific issues that um that they're wondering about in relation to this new act but you know in terms of of uh indigenous communities and uh government working together to identify priorities to tackle do you have a sense of like where the where are the hot spots like where the who's who's going to be agitating to push what to the top of the agenda well i think i think that probably i think probably definition around land and territory i mean i think one of the most contentious issues just within our own First Nation community is around land and what the Indian Act did with land laws and, and how it basically had communities fighting with themselves to distract from the bigger question with fighting with government, right? And mm-hmm. so the same thing goes on a broader scale as well. So, you know, I, I take a look at probably, uh, you know, uh, probably aspects of the forestry, mining, you know, the, the mining, we, we were talking about this before we hit record here. Um, the mining law in this con- in this province is what? You can claim online. Be, you can the, you can go online and you can stake a claim. Now. We should do it right now. We should stake no, Michelle Mungell's front yard. But you can just, Ooh. you can 
you can show up, right, yeah. with a piece of paper in your hand, and you can say, "I have a right to." That's right, to dig and you. and it goes all the way back to the to the very beginning. So, I and and like look, these are areas that I know because indigenous communities have come uh, to my office and said, you know, we've just met with government. <laughs> We're not liking what we hear, and it's around mining and forestry and uh, access to the fisheries mm-hmm. and um, and uh, some infrastructure. So, you know, I think I think probably the land base questions are going to be the ones that if, if I was to if I was to kind of guess, but it's a bit of an educated guess just based on what what communities are coming to us with. Okay. The other thing that I want to point out is that we've had an unbelievable well, not unbelievable. We've had a lot of people coming to our office uh, leaders of indigenous communities and they're ready. Like they've been readying themselves for a long time for a different relationship with government. Yeah. And they're very frustrated because government keeps telling them, well, we don't have the, we, we don't have it in place to be able to have the relationship that you want. I think that this has now created the framework for those relationships to happen. So some of it is a lot further away than I think. And other aspects of it are much closer than, then I think people are necessarily prepared to, uh, to, well, not prepared, but no. Well, let's, let's get into some of the specific questions. Sure. So we, we have a question from, uh, from Doug Gook, uh, up in Hi, uh, Quinell area. Hey, Doug. Uh, and you know, similar question from Louise, uh, in Vancouver and, um, you know, a lot of folks curious about site C and the mm-hmm. implications both for the project going forward and, and perhaps, uh, retrospectively, whether, you know, if this act, uh, were in force, it would be possible to do what the what the government did with Site C. Where do you where do you see the um, the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act applying to the the Peace Valley and Site C? Um, that actually is very unclear to me. Uh, I think that it is important to acknowledge that both that that the courts have said they said in Chilcotin actually that it's both forward looking and backward and backward looking that governments are going to have to be very careful about. The decisions that they make. I, th- I think the provincial government was already put on notice when it uh, b- before the decision to proceed with Site C that that um, that basically decisions that they make could be challenged and and could very if if they were deemed to have title or uh, indigenous title there uh, could be um, could be overturned. So I think that the provincial government has already been very well aware that they need to be very careful about decisions they make that have this dispute. Hmm. In terms of what uh, the indigenous communities in that area decide to do, now that uh, now that uh, I, I don't know, I don't have the advice that they're getting from their lawyers about what it is. I think what's important and what the minister has been very clear on, I think that what's what we need to be very clear on, is that this bill is not a silver bullet to change the direction of everything that that people might want the direction changed on. Um, it provides a new framework to build a different kind of relationship. And as my mom always advises me, Adam, this took 160 years or 170 years to evolve to the situation that it's in. It's going to take some time to work us out of it. And so I think that part of this is the it's a, it is a very exciting day in the fact that we've taken this step, but also it's not, it is not necessarily the tool that automatically undoes everything that people generally dislike. As well, 
it's going to be up to those indigenous communities in the area mm-hmm. to bring these, if they've got disagreements with things, we've got a few more here, it's going to be up to them to articulate that on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not going to be up to me or others to articulate their position on something, but it's going to be up to the leaders and the community and the elders in those communities to articulate those on their own behalf. So in the same vein, uh, you know, we have a question from Jane, and I, I don't think she's the only person concerned about uh, no. what's happening with Sutton territory. So the coastal gas link pipeline, we saw the, the militarized response by the RCMP. Um, you know, uh, that pipeline still hasn't been built. And so uh, unlike Site C, it's at an earlier stage. And the question is, you know, how the, how the passage of the Bill on Indigenous Rights might impact that situation. Yeah, again, I think um, we've, we've reached out to uh, leadership in the Wet'suwet'en. Um, they have got a, they've got an ongoing relationship with the provincial government that, uh, like I said, uh, numbers of groups come through. They're, they're not a group that's, that's come through. Um, certainly a lot of their, their advocates have, have come through our office and talked to us about it. Um, it's going to be up to them to take a look at, uh, at the law that, uh, that BC has just made and determine how it's going to be. I, I don't, I can't tell you how they would like to apply that. Certainly, um, from what I've seen from here, um, they have been, uh, representing themselves mm-hmm. and, and, um, almost exclusively, in fact, not just from a, from a, from a governance perspective, but, uh, I think also from a environmental act advocate's perspective. Um, and, uh, and I, you know, I've talked to the minister about the situation. He's been up there. The premier has been up there. They've certainly got the full attention of government. And uh, I'm certain that their people will be looking at this law and, and figuring out how to apply it. I don't know how they're going to choose to do that. Uh, if you have uh, questions for Adam, uh, by all means, you can type them into the chat window uh, within, within the webinar. Um, we have a comment from Deborah who just wanted to say, this is absolutely wonderful to see. It's finally happening within my 65 years on this earthly plane. It's about time that Indigenous people all over the world are better represented. There is hope. Thank you. Thank you for your comment, Deborah. Um, and we have a question from uh, Sandra that actually echoes uh, one from Jean up in Hazleton or Kispiox Valley. Hi, Jean. Hi to Joy and, uh, and everybody and my mom. Um, will the uh, First Nation leaders be consulted and heard with how forestry... I did a shout out for my mom too, to my mom too, didn't I? I would yeah. guess that both our moms are watching. That's probably a safe bet. Um, Will uh, Indigenous leaders be consulted and heard with how forestry practices are handled, especially with logging old growth? And this relates to, to Jean's question around clear-cutting uh, up in the Kispiox, as it's called, timber, timber supply area. Um, and, uh, you know, he's particularly concerned about the, um, about the cedars, about the, the kind people, uh, mm-hmm. which take a long, long time to, uh, to reach maturity. And, um, yeah, I think there's concern all over the province about the pace and scale of logging, especially old growth. How do you see this bill providing some leverage in that fight? Um, well, I think that it I think that it provides uh, some more clarity than what than I I, th- I think that the conversation started with uh, the Chilcotin decision what, back in 2014. I think it was right 2014 when, when that decision was made. I think there's lots of questions around crown land and what might happen with crown land if indigenous communities started to. And certainly, I know that many indigenous communities have come through, their leaders have come through 
uh, our office and have met with us at the First Nations uh, or the BC Cabinet First Nations Leadership Gathering, and forestry issues are the top priority. I know, in from from my um, from my recollection of all the meetings that I've had, forestry seems to be the highest in terms of frustration, where people will say we are sick and tired of watching the forests from our territory be hauled out of here in a hor on horizontal uh, beds of trucks. So I think that this is actually um, probably one of the industries why government in the past didn't bring in yeah. because of, because of uh, the state you know, of forestry in terms of um, its role in the BC economy. Yeah, it was the number um, one employer in that's BC right. for a and, long time. And so I think that I think that uh, the the question was is is it going to require consultation? Um, I think uh, we we talked a little bit about it. It's going to require more than consultation. Um, free, prior, and informed consent. In fact, consultation. I think that I think the duty to consult. And this is I'm I'm now working on the fly here. Uh, I don't. I think it came up in Haida or Dalgamuk. Dalgamuk, I think, and it was the 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 Supreme Court of Canada ruled that you know the very least they needed to be consulted, and then that became the Indigenous people needed to be consulted, and then that became kind of like the the golden rule: as long as you consulted, you were good enough. The reality was is that was the least thing that we should be doing. Mm -hmm. We should be seeking free, prior, and informed consent. The other word for it was talk and log. Right, talk and log. That's right. So. Um, they, it was kind of like, well, if, you, if you're not going to go all the way, then there is a duty to consult. Yeah. And that was really clearly undefined. At least consent. Mm -hmm. Like, in order for you to get me here, I had to consent to that, mm -hmm. right? And, and it required you to ask and for us to, you know, figure out what time. And, and there's a whole process in it, right? In fact, I think I asked you, but anyway, that's well, it also required a prior a prior relationship, you know, That's before right. before either of us wanted something from the other person. And information. We're neighbors. We know each other. Our That's families right. overlap going back yeah, right. a couple generations. So That's right. uh, that might be a precursor to a conversation where you can hammer out a deal, like uh, whether it's around resource issues on the land or, or other requests you have from people. Um, there is a question uh, from Owen around free prior and informed consent. Yeah. Basically, he asks... Um, how uh, we will know when this has been achieved, who gets to decide um, when, when consent has been attained. And in particular, um, very important in this part of the world, what if people with overlapping territories uh, do not, in the end, agree on, uh, on, on how that land should be used or do not both give their consent to the same level? Right. And so I think uh, I'm... During the uh, BC Cabinet First Nations Leadership Gathering, uh, there was a whole session on o overlapping claims. And this has been an area that I think there's been a lot of work uh, amongst the Indigenous leadership about it, because it, it about s sorting it out and creating frameworks for it to be, for it to be sorted out. Like I've always been told that you know, our territory began and ended where our names started and ended. Hmm. And uh, almost certainly... The names of our places ended somewhere over the line of where somebody else, you know, another territory's names, right? And so, uh, in some cases, you can look, and they've got in in the Halkomenum area, the Halkomenum speaking areas, that's the same names. So I think um, certainly this the the question 
and maybe not Owen's tone, but how other people have, have asked this, which is like, okay, well, because we're, because we can't sort out whose territory it is and because we might get to a situation where you've got conflicting decisions from, uh, from different groups, then at that point we throw our hands in the air and walk away and say, it's an impossible task. We're never going to achieve it. And so this is, this is not something we can do. I or think, the, or they cherry pick communities that have sure. given consent or signed an impact benefit agreement and then hold them up as, as being the, That's right. the and title so, holders. So, so you, you know, the wet sweat and, and the coastal gas link, certainly they will, they will go out or even trans mountain. They'll go out and say, you know, we've got all of the um, Indian act reserves. We've got all these people who've signed off on them. Mm -hmm. Right. They won't tell you the process of how they got those signatures, but nonetheless, um, I've heard some of the I've heard some of the stories about how some of those signatures have been achieved, um, and you know it, it's, it's it's not a it's not a great history and it's a modern it's a it's the modern history it's the one right now yeah it's not ancient history, um, you know I, I've I've often talked about the Last Chance tour where you know uh, Kinder Morgan was coming around saying we know that they, we know that they're going to approve this and you've got one more chance to accept the three million dollars mm -hmm. and. If you don't take it, they're going to build it anyway, which, you know, that, that just, yeah. Yeah. it's not free prior and informed consent by no, any means. So, so I think um, the other thing you see, sorry to interrupt, but you see this averaging exercise where you have a big project like Trans Mountain and they say, well, over half of the band governments along the route have signed benefit agreements. Therefore, it has consent. That's right. And land and title to land is not an averaging exercise. You can't go along, you can't draw a thousand kilometer line on the map and say, well, if more than half of the people along this pipeline route say yes, then you should be able to build the thing. It's not majority rule. No, that's right. And I think, and I also think that what's interesting is that this is only a real problem. And I think this speaks to, this speaks to kind of where we're at. This is, this is only really a problem when it comes to indigenous communities. I mean, We've got these processes in local governments where the community has a say about, about mm. things and, and they're able to come out and say no. Mm. So when, when, when a community comes out and says, no, I don't want that condo in my neighborhood, that's their right. When an indigenous community comes out and says, no, we don't want that there, you know, now they're being ob obstructionist, right? And mm -hmm. so I think it's, I think it's important that we, that we recognize that in our society in 2019, you don't get to um, you don't get to leverage one person's consent over another person's non-consent, hmm. right? Like I don't get to say, well, kind of, kind of like what your point was. You say, well, just because you you're consenting, everyone else in this place then also now is consenting as well. Which, you know, we are in a society and and in a in a in a culture right now that's that's changed a lot about uh, around consent in so many other ways. Someone that I would have just given a hug to a little while ago, I now go, right, Ken? Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, yes? Okay. Mm -hmm. There we mm -hmm. go. Right? Where I would have maybe uncomfortably made the assumption in the past that that was fine. And that is happening everywhere in our society. We are well aware that in our society, consent, in, in our modern uh, society here, consent is a very important thing. And it shouldn't be less important. And it shouldn't also be that because it seems like it might be difficult for us to achieve it, that then is an excuse for us to 
abandon it entirely. And I'm not suggesting that that's what Owen is saying. I'm just saying that that is the overarching narrative. So in a more direct response to Owen's question, you work hard and you, you work often and you work for a long time if that's what it takes. And, and you put the type of resources into achieving the result that is that equals the, um, uh, the level of importance of the decision. So if it's a big decision, like a big pipeline or a big energy project or a big forestry, then you put the appropriate resources in to pay respect to the people who have a right to have a voice in that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we don't hesitate at all in throwing all of the resources that we need at, um, you know, at a business relationship in order to secure the business relationship. You know how much, how many resources the provincial government threw into LNG in order to secure one single plant? We, we had our, almost our, you know, half our government ministries and most of our negotiators and a lot of a lot of the bureaucracy, um, you know, um, pointed at securing an LNG uh, facility in this in this province. Yeah. We spend an incredible amount of resources. We're now subsidizing that to an incredible length. So I would expect that if it's important for it to us, we will put the appropriate level of resources. We will have the appropriate level of conversations. And if indigenous communities are, uh, are, um, have, have issues with it, then we will continue the conversation until either we exhaust that and realize that no, it's not going to happen, which is a, which is actually a fine result. Mm -hmm. Um, it's it's only kind of this weird thing that we have in this culture that the only result that we that's acceptable is yes right um, and uh, and we will let will everybody will will know around the table that this is an important decision. There's a question from David uh, around overlapping federal jurisdiction because the feds torpedoed their bill on the rights of indigenous people. Uh, they don't have. UNDRIP as part of federal law. So when we're talking about fisheries, the same species could be under provincial jurisdiction uh, in part of its life cycle and under federal jurisdiction in another part of its life cycle. So how do we deal with the fact that the federal crown does not recognize free prior and informed consent and it asserts jurisdiction over some very important things in our lives in BC? Pipelines and fish being two of them. Yeah, it's certainly going to have to be, a, I, I don't David, I don't have the answer to that. I mean, I think that it, this is part of the conversation that we have to have uh, with the federal government. I think that we already have that challenge, um, overlapping jurisdictional issues that already exists, especially if you think about salmon. We're responsible for looking after the habitat of their spawning areas and their and their the tributaries and the rivers. And when it hits the ocean, um, the the federal government, uh, the federal government, it, it's a it's a jurisdictional mess mm -hmm. um and and certainly this this the, the fact that the bc uh has adopted the undrip i think that what's important to point out is that this impacts the decision that bc makes it doesn't yeah. necessarily impact the decision that the feds make so this informs and impacts the decisions that we make in the province of british columbia it informs how we approach the federal government it informs how we interact with indigenous leaders and indigenous communities. It doesn't, it, it doesn't necessarily change the outcome from the federal government, but it changes our response to an, an outcome from the federal mm. government. 
I want to give the uh, the last question to Louise tonight. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing a situation where uh, every MLA in the House voted for this bill. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the most ambitious projects to tackle climate change are coming from Indigenous communities. And Louise points out that the BC government is basically on a business-as-usual track, uh, which is deepening the climate crisis, all, all rhetoric to the contrary. Um, and she asks, is there interest in promoting nonpartisan conversations led by Indigenous leaders aimed at that transition to a post-carbon economy? Basically, the way I read that, you know, is there greater space now um, for leaders outside of the partisan political process to pick up some of the important work in averting this climate crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think I think so many of the decisions that are made uh, in the legislature are inspired by partisan politics and, and vote counting and and seat um, and 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 determining, you know, this decision has an outcome over here and that that will result in a couple of seats and you know, it seems like for the most part, there's a lot of determinations that go into how do we get our majority government sure. and um, what happens when that when that kind of overtakes the um, well that overtakes governance and so the decisions are not necessarily being made based on what is the best governance it's 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 you know like like Political we expediency. said like we said during the the uh, the debate on LNG this was a desire for this government to do something the last government didn't do. That doesn't make it great policy. So my hope is that um, that with Indigenous leadership, uh, that it will start to change. The, I think that we saw that in, in the legislature. I think to some extent we've seen that with the, with the, res- the, the players in the resource economy have gone from have gone from outright opposition to it or, or, or at least some fear-mongering around it to accepting it and starting to turn into it and say, okay, now how do we work with the situation that is? How do we work with the Indigenous communities on the ground? How do we build those relationships? Uh, and what, what that's, in all honesty, what that's going to result is going to result in some decisions and some projects uh, not going forward and much to the pleasure of probably some of your viewers. And there's going to be some projects that some of your some of the viewers here tonight are going to go what what what, and that's because you know I think that there's been this this culture in our province that when we stand next to shoulder to shoulder with each other that there's an assumption that we're standing there for all the same reasons, and that's and I think that's a mistake. I think we have to recognize that the people that we're standing with are standing there for for different reasons, and it's important for all of us, whether it be the the leadership in the legislature. Or the leadership, um, uh, indigenous leadership, uh, or whether it be in environmental groups or social activist groups, that we take the time to understand why it is that we're, st- why are we sitting here together right now? What is motivating us to do this work together? Um, and not to assume that we're all here for the same reasons, because often that's not the case. You're speaking particularly about environmentalists and their assumptions about indigenous communities or what might be motivating. Indigenous leaders? Um, well, I think that it's, sure, but I also think that it's broader than that. I think that there's probably aspects of the uh, 
social justice activism that that as well probably there, there's aspects of that as well um and 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 i think a, a an assumption that um that indigenous communities are not necessarily uh are, are op- opposed to these projects uh because they oppose the project i think that in some cases, indigenous leaders are opposed to them because they've not been involved in the decision. They've not been involved from the beginning. They're seeing fiber, the fiber, the trees. Their their relatives leave, and 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 it's not being done in a good way, or they're not benefiting from it. One of the things that I think is uh, is really sorely missing in our society is a deep understanding that indigenous people have were some of the most efficient resource developers. Uh, in the history of this province, uh, and uh, you just take a look at the f- the fishing techniques of the Saintnich people, they are they were so precise, so precise, down to each and every fish. Yes, that one. No, that one. Yes, that one. No, that one. And 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 developing resilient and sustainable resource harvesting practices. Mm-hmm. But we were resource developers. Mm-hmm. We developed those resources. So I think that. I think it's important for us to in, to respect the sophistication and the complexity of what we've got in front of us and not assume that just because this bill passed, that's it, the work's done, here we go. Actually, what everybody that I've been talking to around the table about this is to say, okay, this first stage of the work is done. Now it's up to us to actually do the next stage of the hard work, and that's building an action plan, figuring out what's next, what's first, um, and that's including indigenous leadership into that into that conversation, um, and creating a table that we can have those honest conversations in a way that is productive and environmentally um, friendly, and and uh, we can build a more sustainable and resilient economy together. Uh, so I, I don't want my last comments to cast a, a cloud over this whole conversation because I think it's important to go right back to what we began with, which was. There are fundamental different worldviews that I'm, and, and the one that I'm learning about is Hussainich. They're very consistent right across the province in terms of the worldview. So the relationship is different. But I think that it is important that we're also not overlooking uh, some of the more uh, complex aspects of the relationships as well. We're going to have to leave it there. We're at the top of the clock and people have, have busy lives and maybe kids they'd like to see before uh, bedtime. Ah, you know. Um, so I want to thank Adam again for uh, joining us tonight uh, and, and thank all of you, of course, for your interest in, uh, in this process, um, in this step, this milestone, BC's Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples Act. So thank you for your time. Um, this is the second in our fall webinar series. Uh, we will be posting it online and we'll be sending out that link. Uh, you can also check out the first conversation we had with Chal uh, Salem, who's the spokesperson for the Squamish Nation. That was uh, a couple of weeks ago and that's on our blog. Um, and I'm pleased to confirm tonight that we will be joined next week uh, by Dolly Kershaw from the Chilcotin Nation. Um, and Dolly's going to be sharing the story of the Chilcotin solar farm, which is now oh, the cool. biggest solar farm in British Columbia. Um, it's, uh, it's a beautiful facility. I got to visit it over the summer. It sits on the site of an abandoned sawmill uh, looking out over the, the Chilcotin River uh, near Williams Lake. And I think it's a really powerful symbol mm-hmm. of this uh, new economy that is asserting itself in an era of strengthened Indigenous nationhood and governance. And it's a pretty cool, uh, it's just a fun 
rollicking tale of uh, building the province's biggest solar farm um, from scratch. So we'll be welcoming Dolly Kershaw next week. And I want to just say thanks again to Adam and, uh, and all of you. And we'll leave it there and say goodnight. Awesome. Thanks. thanks.